open up to John chapter 13, not our traditional Palm Sunday passage, but we wanted to pick something that was in the last week of the life of Jesus as we begin our Easter week journey with Jesus. This is an event that happened in the last week of his life. The Gospel of John, some of you guys, it's like you open your Bible and your Bible falls open to the book of Acts, which is great. I love it. I love that. But um, we're going to have to go back one book um, to the Gospel of John, John chapter 13. We're going to read verses 1 through 15, and we're also going to read verse 34 and 35. It might not be on the screen, but we're going to read that at the end. So um, if you would, in honor of God and His Word, if you would stand as I read this passage for us. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. And you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Look over in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You may take a seat. All right, we have, we have props this morning. We have a uh, it will all become clear in a moment, I hope. I mean, if it, otherwise, it's going to be a very confusing sermon. Um, this is the beginning of Easter week, the, where we remember really the path of Jesus, his path from a ministry up in Galilee. And when he came down to Jerusalem, it was a path from Palm Sunday to death on a Roman cross and into 
a, an, into a tomb, but not just this path into the grave, but also the path out of the empty tomb to the point where he'd be seated at the right hand of the Father. And so we have a journey to go on this week, and we will be um, remembering the cross of Christ on Friday, Good Friday, 7 p.m. here, and then we'll be, we will be celebrating the resurrection, the vindication of Jesus, who we have witnessed in his humility on the cross, and we will see in his humility here today as we look at the Last Supper. But we, we look forward to the vindication and the celebration of the resurrection. But it is a journey, and every Easter week, I would invite you, it is a time for us to reflect and to go a little bit on the downs and ups of the life and journey of Jesus. And as we anticipate the victory of Easter, I want to consider that journey. Now, we're going to be looking on Good Friday and Easter morning, we're going to be looking at the same passage, which is Philippians chapter 2, which tells of this idea, this journey of Jesus, who being in the very form of God, did not regard equality with God, something to be held on to, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a human being, but not just in the form of a human being. He could have come as any human being. He could have come as a king, as a prince, as a wealthy person, but he came as a servant. So we have this stepping down, this self-emptying of Jesus from being in the very form of God to being made as a human, to being found as a servant, and then to dying a death, but not just a death like a death of old age or a death that was a peaceful death, a death that was a violent death, a, a humiliating death, death on a cross. And so we see that this journey from not considering equality with God, something to be desperately held on to, this self-emptying, humanity, servanthood, death, even death on a cross, that this is the path for which God then steps in and highly exalts Jesus. We tend to think that if I, if I want to go to a path of exaltation, like if I want to go to a path of glory or fame, has anybody ever thought about this before, like what the path to fame looks like? We oftentimes think that the path to fame looks like this, up, this upward trajectory. But God says, look, the glory of God is not a path of upward trajectory. The glory of God is actually a path of service. It's a downward path. And that then there's this reliance that God will vindicate. And so as we think about this moving down to death on a cross, which we will be remembering on Friday night, but then entrusting ourselves, that Jesus entrusted himself to his Father to vindicate him. You must think just how much trust that would have taken to go through all of that, and we'll be reflecting on that. But this passage today, we read, gives us some sense of the story of Jesus' self-emptying love. I talked a couple weeks ago about this idea that there is no power in the world more, uh, more potent than the idea of self-emptying love, of giving of yourself. There is nothing that can overcome that sort of of love. And so today I want to look at an example of Jesus' self-emptying love as we see it at the Last Supper, a famous, a memorable passage that we read this morning. And we pick up this journey in the last week of Jesus' life. Now, if you are, if you've been around for a while as a believer, or maybe you've been a Roman Catholic or something like that, what I'm going to talk about tonight is, or this morning is essentially what we would call a Maundy Thursday message. You're like, Maundy Thursday, I thought Tuesday came after Monday. No, Maundy, Maundy is, Maundy is Latin for co the commandment, 
and we read the new commandment. And so oftentimes in a liturgical tradition, Thursday night would be the night where we would learn about the new commandment that Jesus gives to love one another. And so what we're going to be talking about here with Jesus and the washing of the disciples' feet and the giving of the new commandment, this is really a Maundy Thursday message. We're finding this in the week, last week of Jesus' life here on Palm Sunday, but this is what we're going to be looking at this morning. We want to explore just what Jesus is doing, what he's teaching, and what it means for us here in the 21st century. You guys with me today? We're going to be taking a little journey around the table today, and or on the couches, I should say. But in order to understand this passage, you guys ready? I mean, if you want to take some notes, I know you guys are like, I always take notes. And some of you are like, hey, look, don't tell me to take any notes. I'm done with school, okay? And that's fine. But pay, hopefully this will help to give a sense of what John is trying to do with this passage. And in order to understand the significance of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, one of the things that we need to understand is simply the nature of formal dining in the ancient world, in the first century. And actually, in the Greco-Roman, the, the Greek world and the Roman world, as well as the Jewish world, formal dining tended to take place um, in what they would call a triclinium. Now, um, tri means three, and you can see we have three tables here, but triclinium, a cline, is a couch. And formal dining would take place in this way, that you would have three couches, kind of like this, and they would all surround a central table where the food would be. So these, these are tables, but pretend they're couches, okay? And you would have a formal, you, and this open space in the middle would be the place where the servants would come in, and they would put food on the table, and then they would be able to go without interrupting the dining. Now, the way the dining would take place is that you wouldn't sit at the tables. We oftentimes think of sitting at a table. Now, oftentimes, in, in less formal meals, you would have people that sat at tables, but in formal meal settings, people would recline, and the way it would look is like this. Hang on to your hats and glasses. All right? So you would lean, okay, I've always wanted to do this. Um, you would lean on your left arm, and then you would reach over and you would eat with your right. And so you would do this and your feet, your feet would essentially hang off the side of the couch. So imagine that you would have about three or four people on each couch, maybe a little bit larger, not to scale here, but you can see, let's see if I can do this without, it's good, I lost a few pounds, so I have a little trust in the, in the tables. Thank you very much. Um, but with this said, you, have these, you would have these, these couches and people would recline to eat their meal. Now, there were particular places that people were supposed to sit. And we can learn about this if you read some of the Greek literature of the ancient world and the Jewish literature of the ancient world. You can read about where people would sit. And so I want to give you a little bit of a sense of where people would have been expected to be sitting at a formal dining arrangement like this, like a Jewish Passover meal, which is what this is. So if you are, there's a, there's a place, really the, the whole thing centers around places of honor, places of honor, and the, the attention of the meal would go to the places of honor, and the host would typically sit at the head of the left side couch. This, this clean, this, this, uh, this couch would be the place where the host would sit at the head of this. So if the, if the table were here, the host would recline 
right here. There would be, then in descending places of honor, the place of honor would be here. And honor, the honor of the meal would be based on its proximity to the host. The host is the one hosting. And so there would, the honor of the, of the meal would, would rest in the host. And then you, the host would have someone sit in a place of honor. And then in, if we can do this, this couch would typically be reserved for the family of the host or those who were kind of the more intimate friends of the host. So there's, there's some, some would argue that you have host is first place of honor, this is the second place, and then this would be the third place of honor. So, but honor is all here. This is where, this is where the best food, like if you're coming in to serve, all the best food goes right here within reach of those who are of honor, okay? And then varying, you know, lesser, lesser portions and whatnot would move out that way to the rest of the group around the table. And what you would have is you would have kind of descending places of honor as you move away from the host. So you move here to the edge of the, of the table here. This would be the least. This would be the place where Again, you're the furthest away from the host. You're still invited to the meal. It's not like you're, you know, it's not like you're chopped liver or anything like that. But even Jesus makes mention, do you guys remember that he, he kind of chides the Pharisees? Because when they come to places, when they come to meals, when they come to these feasts, they choose for themselves places of honor that you could imagine somebody get, coming to the, the table and kind of sizing it all up and like, am I, do I know the host that well to make it on this table? Probably not. So maybe I should, I'll, I'll, I'll try, I know I'm not going to be the guest of honor, but maybe I can get close. So this idea of like getting in a spot, but if you got down here, you were like, you know, you were like, well, yeah, way to go. Like I got here late or whatever. Like I'm, I'm way away from everything. But you can see even this idea, the size, this is about the right size. You can have conversation around this table. But this is, this is the formal dining arrangement of the first century in a triclinium. You guys with me? All right, all right, all right, good, good. Uh, has anybody heard this stuff before? I mean, this, okay, hopefully this is not new to you, but hopefully we can, we can understand a little bit of what's going on here. Now, what we find out, and this brings us to our first observation. Oh, by the way, so let's fill in some of the places. Jesus is probably the host. Okay, and we're going to see that even John, even though they're, they're borrowing a room, Jesus is probably clearly the host, and that comes to us as we look at our passage when he says, you know, do you understand what I've done to you? Call me teacher and Lord, for rightly I am so. And so Jesus is the place of honor, the host, the highest place, okay? And this gives us our first observation and Jesus' main point at this meal, and that is this, that the most honored and the most powerful are called to serve. That might sound cliche in your ears, but that would have been shocking to hear in the first century. Look at John 13, 3. Notice, notice the power, power here. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he was in the very form of God, right? He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, 
taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What does Jesus do? Though he is the host, he rises from the meal, and it says that he takes off not just his garment, his garments. So he takes off his outer garment, and then he takes off his tunic. And what he is left with is essentially the, the attire of a slave. It might have been the attire that he had on when he was on the cross, just with a loin covering and a towel. Now, you might be thinking, like, how, how in the world does Jesus do this? Like, how does this all happen? Now, you have to remember, when, if you've ever washed someone's feet, sometimes you realize how, how awkward it might be, and that's because we tend to sit down when we have, and so when you sit down and someone's washing your feet, where is the locus of attention? On the person washing your feet. But if you are reclining at a table, excuse me, Jesus, Let's see if we can do this again. If you're reclining at a table and here you are eating and talking amongst your friends, where is the attention? It's right here. What does a slave need to do? Humbly and lowly, out of sight, going around the outer rim of the table, simply pouring water on feet and wiping them down very quietly and out of the way because slaves would not be the locus of attention. And so Jesus rises from the table and he gets down out of view and he starts going around to people's feet, washing their feet down, not up, not up like he's in charge, down like a slave, by feet, by feet, washing them, wiping them down with the towel that he has. And his first, and this, then this is what he says. Well, it's, it's difficult to find a parallel in our world today. It would kind of be like um, if, the, if, if the president of the United States in the middle of a meal, dignitaries and everybody, like got up and started working the valet booth. Like I was trying to think what would be, you know, taking off the jacket, working the coat check. Like if he got up and he went in and got in and started washing the dishes, something like that. Okay, so that would be the idea of what's going on here, a little bit more to our, you know, in, in our world today. Listen to what Jesus then says in 1312. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are correct. You don't get me, this is my spot. You're right. This is my spot. But you called me teacher and Lord, you're right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. So our first observation is, for Jesus, that the most powerful are called to serve. And Jesus then provides an example of that. But it's not just, see, there's a lot of things, and if you're like me, when you think about Jesus, you're like, yeah, well, that's Jesus. Like, Jesus can do that because Jesus is 
Jesus. Jesus knows. Like, and there are things that Jesus and Jesus alone does that we don't, we don't do. We don't pay for our own sins. Jesus and Jesus alone does that. Jesus dies on the cross. Jesus pays a debt that we cannot pay. Jesus does things that we cannot do. This is not one of those things. Jesus is saying, this is an example. I'm not just giving you, I'm not just giving you an object lesson. I'm actually giving you an example that I want you to also do. And when we think about the atonement, obviously on Good Friday, we're gonna, we're gonna celebrate and we're gonna remember the idea that Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, that, that he has given to me something I could not have ever done for my own self. But there's also a call to follow Jesus, to follow in his footsteps, to take on the attitudes of Jesus. Paul will say in Philippians chapter two, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ, that this example of self-emptying love is not just for Jesus, it's for us. And so our second observation is this is not just something Jesus does, this is an example for us to follow. We recognize that Jesus calls us to do what he did, to behave as he did, to follow him as an example. And that's why we had the reading of the new commandment in John 13, 34. Look at it really quickly in your Bible, John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. How? How do I love one another? Just as I have loved you. Sometimes we take that commandment outside of this example. This is right in the middle of this example. This is the crescendo of the supper. This is the new commandment. That you would serve one, that you would love one another as I have loved you. I have given you an example. All people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, that's, that's a good sermon in and of itself, okay? So that's, I'm not, and, and that, that, like if we, if we can get that into our hearts, look, I, I just think when God said he wanted to change the world, he wanted to use the church, and the way he wanted to do it was through political activism. No, that's not what he said, right? The way that God thinks that the Holy Spirit is going to transform this world when he had an opportunity to send his own son down, what he thought would be best, what he thought would say his own heart the most, was to demonstrate self-emptying love. There is no other power, there is no other thing on the face of this planet that has the power to transform lives than self-emptying love love. When God wanted us to know, what am I like? What, I want these people to know what I am like. I'm going to send my son, and you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to raise him up to be a king, and he's going to rule over everybody with an iron fist. No. He's going to come down, and he's going to serve. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's not an accident. That's not a parenthesis. 
That is the love of God. That's the heart of God. That is what God thinks is going to transform this world. And Jesus, the last night that he is with his disciples, he says, I am going to take the place of a servant. I am Lord and teacher, yes, but I am going to wash your feet because this is a new commandment. This is a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. And all people will know you are my disciples if you have the right doctrine. No. No one might know you are a disciple of Jesus if you say all the right things. They will know you are a disciple of Jesus if you love. What is the greatest commandment? Love God and love others. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you listen to the right Christian music, they will know. No, I mean, you can, right? There's all kinds of things, but let's, if we want to focus on the right thing, it is self-emptying love. And when you see, when you see self-emptying love, when you see the real thing, you know it's real. There's no mistaking it. When people give self-emptying love, there is no way of looking away. You cannot explain it away. The world can't explain it. Because they know something is real, something is true, something is enduring because the love of God has come down on this earth and has made its way into a situation that you are currently looking at. There is no mistake of self-emptying love. You cannot fake it. You cannot copy it and hope. There's no formula for it. God shows up, and when God shows up, there is self-emptying love. All right, amen to that? Amen. All right, I got, a, I got more sermon to do, so I got I to gotta steady myself here because I'm getting kind of pumped up. All right. Now, there are some other meal details here that help give us a sense of the sort of the depth of the self-emptying love of Jesus. All right, look at 1321. 1321. So after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So here's Jesus, and he's eating. I'm not going to lay down again for you, but he's eating. And he says, hey, everybody, one of you is going to betray me. Now, that'll stop the conversation, won't it? Right? You're at a meal. The host kind of calls out, like, somebody here is going to betray me. And now look at their response. Their response at 1322, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. So you can imagine you're around this table, everybody's looking around like, what's going on? Like, who is it? Who is it? So Peter, so Jesus, in the middle of this meal, he drops this bomb, and you can get a sense of the sort of looks. And then we get some further information about the seating arrangement. Now, one of the disciples, this is 1323, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. Now, the disciple whom Jesus loved is John. John's the one who writes the Gospel of John. John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, it was no doubt that he knew that he was beloved by Jesus. He's on the family chair. He's on the family couch. 
and he's close, and he's right next to Jesus. So Jesus is reclining here, doing his thing. Uh, this is kind of a weird reclining. Um, and then John is, is right in front of him, essentially. Now look at 1324. So one of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So John is to Jesus' right here in one of the top spots on the family couch, intimacy, friendship. Um, Peter is somewhat removed from Jesus. Far enough not to be able to speak to John without being heard. Where could, G- where could he be? I'm just guessing here. See, maybe Peter was the one who was supposed to put the arrangements together. Some people even argue that um, Jesus starts washing feet and he comes to Peter. And Peter says, whoa, 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 you don't do this. You're not doing this to me. Because maybe Peter was in a spot that he was the one who was supposed to take care of all the arrangements for all that. But he comes to Peter down the road here, and he stops at Peter, and we have that interaction with Peter. Peter is humble enough to note the incongruity of what Jesus is doing, but not humble enough to say, you're right, Jesus, <laughs> right? He, but not humble enough to not tell him what to do. Like, this is kind of Peter's way. Um, but it's okay. We got, we're going to find that there's a lot of, Jesus still washes Peter's feet, right? So Peter's here. So Peter is here. Jesus says, drops a bomb over there. So Peter's like, Peter goes, is like, okay, I want to know who this is. So he's, it says that he nods to John. John, 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 John. Who is he talking about? Who is? So he, he doesn't want anybody to know. So he's just like, what's the Ask him. Ask him. Okay, so John. John, it says, equal to the task here. So Simon Peter motioned him, nods at him, and asked Jesus whom he's speaking. John being open to find out the information quietly, he leans back to Jesus, 1325. That disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, who are you talking about, Jesus? <laughs> quietly, nobody knows. And Jesus is up for it. All this little secret communication, he's like, I'm going to dip this bread, and I'm going to hand it to So no one knows, but all this secret stuff is going on. So what does it say? To whom I give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he handed it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Who is the only person in arm's reach of Jesus? The place of honor. Now, whether Jesus had invited Judas to be at the place of honor that night or whether Judas had found that place for himself, we don't know. We do know that Jesus washed Judas' feet. We do know that Jesus fed Judas. He gave him the morsel. And this brings us to our third observation. We've already seen that the powerful are called to serve. And that this is not just something that Jesus does, but that we are called to do. 
But this third observation is, not only do you serve the people you love, but you find a way to love your enemy. To love your betrayer. To even serve your betrayer. Yeah, but Jesus is Jesus. Jesus is Jesus. He can do that. A new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The powerful are called to serve, and Jesus gives us an example of that. And we are called to follow in his example. And we are reminded that that example calls us to love our enemies, to pray for our rivals, to serve those who might not hold our agendas, who might not hold our values or our love, but our love is self-emptying. Because when God wanted us to know what his love was like, he sent his son Jesus to say what God's love looks like. Love your rival, love your betrayer, love your enemies. It's a call. And Jesus has walked before us and has served us, and we are called to serve each other, to reach beyond our own circles, to find love, care, service, and compassion. I, I can say this. There's a couple things that I just want to challenge you with, with this. If, if you, I'm challenged by this. You probably are feeling a little challenged by this. Maybe somebody's even come to mind, and you're like, I don't know how I'm going to love that person or serve that person. Well, look, that, the, the challenge is, can God show you a way to love? Can God give you a path to serving that rival, to serving that person, to being somehow a blessing in their life? Because God seems to think that the most transformative power on the face of the planet is self-emptying love. That's the challenge of this morning. Now, here's the encouragement of this morning. I don't know where you've been. I don't know where your story. I know some of you, your stories. I don't know everybody's stories. I know that we all have things we regret in our lives. And I know that we've all had things happen to us that we wish had not happened to us. And sometimes we feel the shame of wanting to hide because of that. And that we wonder if God would even love me, would love us, would love anyone here. And the encouragement that I want to give to you this morning is, if you were at this meal, Jesus would have washed your feet. Even if you told him, look, Jesus, you shouldn't wash my feet. I'm not worthy of this. He would have said, I really need to. Because I really need you to know how much I love you. I don't want you wondering in the middle of the night if I love you. I need, I need something for you to be able to remember. I need you to remember the, the feeling of the water on your feet and the towel on your feet. I need you to remember this. 
because you can forget it. You might forget it. You're a human. I know I'm a human too. (laughs) You might forget it, and I need you to know that I love you, and I would do anything for you. There's a challenge in this passage, but there's also something that grounds us, that keeps us centered, that helps us to remember who we are, not because of something inside of us, but because that God would say, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were weak, God sent his son. While we were enemies, God reconciled you to to himself. It's not after you got cleaned up. It's not after you washed your own feet. Jesus says it's really important that you understand this. I'm going to wash you. And obviously, after this supper, Jesus is betrayed. And he's eventually tried and hung on a cross. And there is a washing. Sin had left a crimson stain but you have washed it white as snow. What a great line from that song we sang earlier. Jesus needs you to understand, I would do anything for you. And now I want you to go out and love the way I loved you. It is the most transformative power on the planet. And my hope is that you have experienced that transformative love in your own life so much so that you've let it take root in your life and call out for me to call out my own selfishness, my own, re- my own Peterness, you know, in that to say, no, never, Jesus, I want to do it myself. I want to be right. But to transform, to reach in and to transform through the self-emptying love of Jesus. This is our call, but it is also our encouragement.